Hello, and welcome to Decent Jobs on a Living Planet, an environmental podcast where we talk to people, from experts to activists, about just transition and what it means from a Scottish perspective. The term just transition originates from trade unions, so what does it mean? We know that fossil fuels are fueling the climate crisis and we need to move away from them. However, fossil fuel industry is a major player in Scottish and UK society and economy. There are 30,000 people directly employed in the UK offshore oil industry, a further 70,000 in domestic supply chains, and thousands more living in communities heavily reliant on the fossil fuel industry. How do we make a transition away from fossil fuels in a way that is just for workers, communities and the planet? With the global pandemic and economic turmoil, the context of discussions around just transition are hugely different now. While jobs in many industries are looking precarious, jobs in the fossil fuel industry are more precarious than ever and workers' rights have come to a forefront. Talking about a just transition is therefore more important than ever. Due to the pandemic, we recorded this episode over a video call, so we thank you for bearing with us with the audio quality. Today we're joined by Dr Ewan Gibbs from the University of Glasgow, and we'll be discussing oil and nationalism. So to begin, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, Ewan, and also what you do? Hi there. Um, as you said, my name is Ewan Gibbs. I lecture in economic and social history at the University of Glasgow. My background is in research in labour and working class history, especially the experience of deindustrialisation in Scotland. My PhD and my, my book that's coming out soon researched the the decline of uh, coalfield employment the long-term effects of the restructuring of, of labour markets away from mining and manufacturing employment and the uh, changes in, in energy sources in Scotland. I'm especially interested in how these processes have altered the politics of class, but also the the politics of nationhood in Scotland and in association with changes in, in political consciousness and political affiliations in, in party terms in Scotland over the last 50 or 60 years. But attached to that is, is a growing interest I've got in energy policy and energy sources, uh, especially the long movement out of a coal economy towards firstly an, an oil and gas economy and now uh, latent questions about transitions to a renewable economy and what that means for workers and communities affected by those changes. Thanks, Ian. That's really interesting. So it sounds like a lot of the work you do kind of is along the lines of a just transition and exploring that. So one question that we ask to everybody that we interview as part of this podcast is what a just transition means to them. So our second question is, yeah, what does a just transition mean to you? I suppose to me, a, a just transition means a, an alteration in energy generation and energy usage towards a environmentally friendly and, and sustainable basis, but on a basis that is also equitable and, and just in terms of economic security for communities that are 
affected by those changes. In some senses, I look at previous episodes of both relatively just and much more unjust transitions that, that took place in the, the long uh, the long rundown of, of the coal economy, actually. Some, some of those transitions were relatively well organised between the 1940s and 1970s. Workers were found alternative jobs and community labour market security was provided for, whereas in the 1980s and 1980s there was a much more rapid rundown. Trade unions were excluded from industry. New jobs of comparable earning power, comparable security were much harder to come by. So I'd say that a just transition has to involve those environmental and industrial ends. I would also say that I think my answer that I've given you there is perhaps quite nationally focused. I think that to be a genuinely just transition, we need to be thinking about the operation of the global economy as well and global experiences and, and, you know, particularly the global south, which is often disproportionately affected by the effects of um, climate change. And could you give us an overview of Scotland's political history with oil and gas? And also just speak a little bit about the importance of North Sea oil and gas to the Scottish independence campaign. Yeah, so North Sea oil and gas now has a relatively long history. It's over 50 years old. Um, in the late in the late nineteen sixties, gas and then oil were, were found off the east coast of Britain. And, and initially actually that gas seemed to be concentrated off the east coast of England. And it, it looked like that industry might develop off the coast of um of eastern England. But actually it, it turned out quite quickly that gas and then oil, and it, it was oil which was the most profitable of the two was heavily concentrated in what had historically been Scottish waters. Um, BP began to exploit the exploit a, a huge field um, off the, the off the coast of Scotland in the early nineteen seventies, and that the, that was the, that was the beginning of a major industry. And, that changed the debate on Scotland's constitutional future. And, and I think it is worth saying that that didn't start with oil. Um, there was a... Winnie Ewing won the, the Hamilton by-election in 1967 uh, it was a, a, for the SNP. That was a, a shock breakthrough. In the middle of an industrial labour heartland, you had disgruntled voters who were dealing with major economic changes dislocations in traditional working class communities, the building of new towns, new housing schemes and new factories was already loosening the traditional bonds of industry and and class that had linked Scots to working class Scots in particular to the Labour movement and the Labour Party. But certainly the discovery of oil changes things because independence becomes a thoroughly economically viable proposition. By some estimates, it, it would have made Scotland the richest or one of the richest nations in the world. And there's a strong sense that this oil was being mismanaged. So in advance of the oil coming online in the mid-1970s, in the early 1970s, the 
Scottish National Party, SNP, begin a, a campaign that's very memorable. It's titled It's Scotland's Oil. Um, if you quickly Google search for this, you can see some really quite striking images. Some of them say England expects Scotland's oil. Other ones have different Scots. They have an unemployed industrial worker. They have an impoverished single mother. And the question is posed, why are they not going to benefit from this oil? And the SNP's peak before devolution comes in the two elections in 1974. I think by, by October 1974, they received something like 36% of the vote. And you're talking about a party that had been exceptionally marginal in the early 1960s. A party that, that received, that got 11 MPs, but more importantly, perhaps came second in swathes of constituencies across industrial Scotland and in, in traditional Labour heartlands, if we want. So oil was animating this, this discussion. Um, once oil comes online in the, the mid-1970s, I think it, one of the, more, the, the, the most convincing Scottish nationalist economic arguments is that that oil wealth was squandered. It was used to meet the requirements of the UK's balance of payments. At that time, there was great concern that the UK was importing much more than it was, or substantially more than it was exporting. There was consider there was pressure on the value of pound sterling, and there was fiscal pressure on the state. So, the answer to that was to extract oil quickly, to hand it to multinationals to drill it out the ground, and that fueled discontent as well. I think the the other major contention in, in nationalism regarding oil was that the SNP came to favour what's called an oil fund. And so, so did parts of the Labour movement left across the UK. So the idea of that is that the oil revenues, preferably from a, a social democratic or socialist perspective, would be in the hands of nationalised a nationalised oil company. But regardless, revenues from that oil should be ring-fenced and preserved for infrastructural investment. And some of that, at least, should be reserved for meeting Scottish-specific needs. That didn't happen. Uh, the, the oil wealth was misused heavily in the first half of the 1980s. It was used as part of the Thatcherite reconstruction of the British economy. So in the end, oil revenues played for, paid for dole queues across much of industrial Scotland rather than being used to rejuvenate industry, the economy and the welfare state. Um, so yeah, moving on to like the more recent um, state of events, can you tell us a bit more about what the SNP's policies on oil and gas were at the time of the most recent independence referendum and then what their policies are today, like how much they've changed since then? Yeah, certainly, I think after that that period that I've mentioned, the sense that Scotland's fiscal position would be secure with oil revenues becomes quite developed in, in SNP arguments and nationalist economic perspectives. So the argument becomes, we've had years now where the Scottish economy, if it was treated, and certainly Scotland's fiscal balance, its public purse would be very secure if it was independent. 
and that feeds into the the perspective and the run up to the independence referendum. The the argument in twenty fourteen takes place in the context of astronomically high oil prices by current standards. So oil prices are over a hundred dollars a barrel for the aftermath of two thousand and eight. The Aberdeen economy is, is actually booming when much of the rest of the world is, is suffering following the 2008 economic crash. And that informs the, the perspective that's put forward in the white paper. There was actually a, two separate papers, uh, one, were drawn, one drawn up by the Scottish government on oil in 2013, and another that was drawn up by an advisory group that, that included the oil industry about how to make the most of the North Sea. And the argument there was that there is still trillions of dollars worth of oil out in the North Sea. It might not be, we might not experience the booms of the 70s and 80s. You know, these those big fields have been exploited and we're, we're looking at oil that's more difficult to extract. The, the oil industry's changed a bit. Um, the majors, the big companies like BP or Chevron don't have the same operation that are seen that they used to. And it's by oil company standards, smaller uh, companies that, that now predominate in the North Sea. So there's the debate becomes about how how you use that, how you use that situation, how the a Scottish government perhaps could be more sensitive to the needs of those companies and make sure the oil was being extracted into the middle of the 21st century. That perspective hasn't changed that much, I think. The, certainly, the, the, the Scottish government uh, debates at Holyrood, the tenor has changed, if you want. The tone of discussion, I think, has altered significantly since the departure of Alex Salmond to had a background as an oil economist. Nicola Sturgeon articulates the need for sustainability, has put forward quite ambitious climate targets. But nevertheless, the, the broad policy perspective, it still appears to be that oil will be extracted in the 2040s. The vision for a net carbon zero Scotland incorporates the possibility of extracting and exporting oil. And I think that that is quite contradictory. But nevertheless, that, that is the perspective that's put forward. They're actually, even on the left, obviously, the, the, the one of the dominant models for independence is Norway. And I think there is a lot that, that can be learned from Norway. And it's certainly the case that Norway with its slower depletion policy, its public ownership of much of its oil reserves, and its use of an oil fund made much better use of its oil from a, a social welfare point of view than, than, than Scotland has. But Norway has a similar perspective when it comes to environmentalism. It also has a, a net carbon zero policy, which will allow it to keep exporting oil, even while it, it runs down its own direct emissions. Thank you for going into detail about that, Ewan. And just on the topic of Norway's Sovereign Wealth Fund, so could you just briefly explain what a Sovereign Wealth Fund is? Yeah, a Sovereign Wealth Fund uh, would simply involve 
ring fencing some of the profits from oil, especially when oil prices were high, and rather than using them for day-to-day expenses, you would use them for investments. So you'd have this separate fund that you could then tap into for special purposes. I think that in the UK in the 1970s, the argument would be that this could be used for industrial investment and investment in, in infrastructure at a time when the UK was starting to feel the effects of deindustrialization. Manufacturing employment was falling, unemployment was rising. There was a sense that oil was an important but time-limited resource and that the benefits of oil should be used over the longer term. They shouldn't just be spent today. You know, It shouldn't be like that story of somebody winning the lottery and spending it all on holidays, and as it were. Um, that should be invested carefully. I would say that we talk about sovereign wealth funds as if they're uniquely social democratic institutions. Lots of countries have got them. What resource-rich countries that are not models of um, social democracy like Norway have got them. And Russia's got one. Lots of the, the Gulf states, the Middle East have got one. Like they're a, they're a sensible thing for a relatively small or simply a resource-rich country to, to, to innovate, to, to develop, because they're a way to effectively use the temporary uh, the temporary benefits of high commodities prices over a longer period. Norway has rules on, on how much it's allowed to dip into its fund, but its funds got larger and larger and larger over time. And, and it's worth noting, they only actually began, I think the Norwegian fund only actually really began in, 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 to, to, to accrue quite large funds in the 90s. So this is quite a recent policy actually, and it has had a major effect. And the Norwegians are only allowed to spend so much of it in one year to ensure that the fund continues to grow in value. I think recently the fund's actually become bigger than the the annual turnover of the Norwegian oil industry itself. It's certainly an absolutely astronomical fund for a, a small country to have. Um, could you just briefly explain why Westminster chose not to create one? There was a debate in the the then Labour government in the late 1970s about this. And Tony Benn, who was the energy minister and a leading voice of the left, he was an advocate of an oil fund as part of a broader approach towards national economic planning. So Benn was in favour of an oil fund. He was in favour of extending tripartite systems of industrial management between workers, trade unions, and government, and essentially developing a model of industrial democracy across the UK. His opponents in in government argued that the best use of oil revenues would be to spend them on day-to-day spending and to cut taxes. That actually the the best... um, Future generations would benefit most from economic growth today. So essentially, it came down to two quite different ideas of the role of government. That 
it bends you. And bear in mind at this point, the oil industry was being slowly nationalised under the British National Oil Corporation. So Ben's vision was plausible. It was possible for a more social democratic Britain to emerge from, from, from these experiences. And oil could have been a big part of that. I think that's quite important when we're considering Scottish nationalist perspectives on oil. That also oil could have been managed very different through the British state as well. So Ben's opponents narrowly won a debate in advance of the 1979 general election. It's possible that had Labour won that election, that might have changed, but obviously Labour didn't win that election. Um, Margaret Thatcher in the mid-70s said, when oil came ashore from the North Sea for the first time, said that the North Sea was not a socialist sea. She said that private enterprise had discovered North Sea oil. And I think that gives you an idea of her terror and her view of oil. And as I've mentioned, the Thatcher government, whilst um, its policies were creating mass unemployment across Britain, whilst it was cutting taxes, was able to use oil revenues, very high oil revenues, during the first half of the 1980s to plug the gap, in effect. So it, you, the Thatcher government used oil revenues to fund economic carnage in the here and now, but it was carnage of a logic. It was about restructuring the economy on liberal market lines and removing the influence of organised labour and accelerating deindustrialization. Thank you. That's so interesting. Um... Can you talk a little bit about Scotland's new National Investment Bank? Because we've been hearing quite a lot about that recently. Um, and how effective you think it can be in supporting a just transition in Scotland? Yeah, I mean, a National Investment Bank has been a topic of conversation in, in Scotland for some time. I think the there's two big questions to be asked about that. I mean, the the first is the size of the bank. It's not a particularly large bank, but it could still have a positive influence. I think the the second question is about its its remit. Um, and to be effective, a national investment bank, I think, has to be willing to make investments that mainstream banks won't. Mainstream banks are obviously making investments with their own profits in mind. To be effective, a national investment bank has to be willing to make investments that are more risky. I think the aim of a national investment bank shouldn't be to make money. It should be simply to break even and, it, and for it to accept that that means that some risks are worthwhile because the aim is to develop sectors in the interests of the economy as a whole. Now, with those two provisos, it, it is obviously quite possible that a, a national investment bank could play a very, very positive role by providing capital to either local authorities or publicly owned bodies that were undertaking relevant activities, or to, you know, especially I think Scottish owned private owned firms which who have got a, a play a, a role to play. In a just transition, you know, certainly a national investment bank could help finance and support 
firms that were involved in decommissioning in the North Sea, for instance, which we really need to be thinking about at the moment if we're having a serious conversation about running the North Sea down in a way which uses the skills of its workers effectively and and repair some of the damage that's been done to the, the environment there. And also a national investment bank could be important in providing financial support to firms in the re- renewable sector. One example of that is I think one of the challenges that, that Scotland faces is that it, it's quite good at developing technology. Like, Scottish renewable firms are innovative, but they then struggle heavily when it comes to scaling up. And that is one of the, the real challenges in, in research and development, is how do you go from having a good product in the sense that it is viable, it's, it's technologically and scientifically proficient if we want, to having something that's economically viable, that you can mass produce and you can actually use in practice competitively. And Scotland played a leading role in developing wind technologies, but then it was unable to make that jump. But at the moment, I think there's a similar situation with Tidal potentially, where Scotland has made some quite important advances. Uh, Scottish firms have, Scottish researchers have, but they're not necessarily in a position to scale up to the point of a competitive commercial energy production. I think the other element here is there's been the discussions about a Scottish energy company, a publicly owned company. And, and I think related to the bank here is what's the role of that too, if we're talking about a public sector intervention in, in energy towards developing energy manufacturing, towards developing a more secured renewable sector in Scotland. I, I think uh, one of the big questions about an energy company at the moment is, is it going to be a generating company? As far as I can see, it isn't. Um, but, you know, I'd like to be proved wrong on that. A generating company that was providing business for Scottish renewables manufacturing would potentially be hugely beneficial. That was great. Thank you for that. And we know that the Scottish government can influence the energy sector through the licences that it issues to energy companies. But we've seen on several occasions, most recently through the Sea Green offshore wind farm, that renewable energy developments don't necessarily create jobs for local communities. So one potential solution to this could be the transfer of our energy system into public ownership or nationalisation, as you've mentioned earlier, Ewan. So could you give us an idea of what this could look like in Scotland, as well as the potential benefits that a publicly owned sector could bring? Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's worth remembering that until relatively recently, energy generation in Scotland was publicly owned. Um, I was born in 1990. That was the year that energy generation was, was privatised. So it wasn't that long ago. I think that a, a publicly owned energy sector would allow you to pursue would allow would, would, would allow you know the more effect more effective pursuit of alternative goals so especially environmental goals and especially related industrial goals a publicly owned generating company could decide that it wants to prioritize the development of a Scottish manufacturing sector it could make the decision, for instance, unlike at Seagreen, that 
actually it wants it wants to buy wind turbines from Scottish yards. You know there are, for instance, there is there is a yard in Fife. Uh, there's two yards run by Byfab, not very far from Green, I think, where um, that work could go to. And I think there's important questions about a just transition that relate to that. There's questions of economic and industrial justice related to that. It seems ludicrous to have wind turbines being hauled halfway around the world uh, and passing the the homes of uh, skilled workers who could be using their skills and generating uh, income for the, the Scottish economy. But also, I think there's environmental questions about that as well, isn't there? That it can't be economically, it can't be environmentally beneficial for wind turbines to be taken from the Indian or Pacific Ocean or the Middle East and transported all the way to Scotland. I saw an STUC report recently estimated that I think in the in the case of Sea Green or one of the other one of the other big wind farms, it's going to take the equivalent of fifty million over fifty million car days of pollution to transport these wind turbines from various parts of the world to Scotland. Now that that can't be a an environmentally just form of production just as it isn't a socially or economically one either. And I'd just be interested to know as well if a publicly owned energy system is something that the SNP or other political parties are currently considering. As far as I can see, the the SNP policy is to have a publicly owned is to have a publicly owned company. Uh, as as I mentioned before, it's not very clear to me that whether that will be a generating company or not. As far as I can see, it won't be. So it it seems to be merely a retail company. So it will just be one of the companies you can buy your electricity from. In practice, you know, the, it's kind of one of these strange quirks of neoliberalism that you can buy your electricity from various companies but we're actually all connected to one national grid our electricity still comes from the same place it's not as if somebody comes and rewires your house every time you you change electricity company um in the last general election certainly the labor party was in favor of the public ownership of energy now obviously i'm not very clear on on whether that will remain the case I, I think I think there's different perspectives in the Greens I know that, that some Greens are keen to emphasise public ownership I know other Greens talk about potentially cooperative ownership that you might actually break up the big six and you might have different parts of it being owned locally and some nationally perhaps and I think there's, there's some merit to that as well but you know when we talk about public ownership I think some to some extent that will be a nationalised energy company to do it effectively. It will mean some elements of it have to be centrally planned, but it might also involve, you know, local authority or community-owned small-scale developments as well. And I think there's a place for both of those things. Um. So, yeah, I'm kind of wondering about your current research. You said that you're releasing a book, which is very exciting. So I would just like to know a bit about... Um, your current research and if that ties into um, this kind of topic around a just transition as well. 
Yeah, uh, my, my book will be out early next year. It's it's called Coal Country, The Meaning and Memory of Deindustrialisation in Post-War Scotland. And that book is about the last set of energy transitions in, in some ways. It's a book based on assessing the, the long movement out of the, the coal economy and the experience of the declining influence of industrial employment and, and production to labour markets and the the Scottish economy between the 1940s and, and into the present. Um, it's based on archival research from the nationalised coal industry and, and trade unions and government policy, and then it traces those big changes in employment structures and in the role of the influence of organised labour in Scottish workplaces across the second half of the 20th century. But it's it's also based on an extensive set of oral history interviews I conducted with miners, um, their relatives, and, and other industrial workers who worked in the Scottish coal field. That it that assesses the changes in community structures, class identity, the politics of nationhood, and what it means to to live in an industrial or former industrial settlement in Scotland. What I'm now doing, I suppose, I think in, in my research is building on that work and thinking about that long movement out of coal, which, you know, we're, we're almost at the end of now. It's likely that, well, Scotland is effectively at that point now. It's its power generation is no longer, no longer has a significant coal contribution. It looks like the last UK coal-fired power station will shut in the mid-2020s. So that's been a really long experience. And something I'm keen to emphasise in my work is that the length of these experiences, you know, they've taken place over a human lifetime. The industrialisation is still with us and it didn't start in the 1980s, it started in the 1940s and 50s. My new work is currently a project on what I call energy nationalisms, uh, along with my colleague Craig McCangus at the University of the West of Scotland. We're completing a project about the links between energy resources and Scottish independence and looking at quite the evolution of quite different visions over time. So we're beginning really with that oil story and also considering the likes of coal, but really that oil story I told at the start of this podcast and then looking at how that's developed through renewables and also the links between nationalism in Scotland and opposition to nuclear power, which was quite pronounced, especially in the 1960s, 70s and 80s. I want to attach that to a larger project that looks at that long transition across the UK, considering the movement out of coal, but also the the development of a new energy infrastructure across the second half of the 20th century into the present. So considering investment in new power stations, investment in oil refineries and terminals, investment in renewables projects. And I want to trace how the politics of environmentalism and the labour movement met and also conflicted in that process. And I think there's some really interesting stories to tell there and perhaps some unexpected ones. For instance, coal miners and hippies protesting against nuclear power stations together is part of that story. But obviously there's there's also more recent questions about where green politics and environmental politics and labour politics have, have cooperated, as well as perhaps the, the better known story of conflicts between the two of them. 
And so just to kind of wrap up and take a forward-looking approach, what changes would you like to see within Scottish government's policies on energy and industry specifically in order for a just transition to be made a reality? I think, firstly, I'd like to see us put a date on when the North Sea's going to run out. I, I think that this idea that we can keep running a North sea, the North Sea oil production into the 2040s is... It just doesn't. It, it doesn't sit well with declaring a climate emergency, and I think it's really important that actually we set a timetable for how North Sea production will come to an end and how that will be managed through engagement with trade unions and organised labour through the provision of security for workers, beginning I think by using using uh, decommissioning as a bridge. And then thinking about how we redeploy that labour effectively. We're talking about very skilled workers, important skills that we have to hang on to. And right now, with the recent oil price crash, those skills are being wasted. And something similar is actually happening in the aviation industry as well. So I think we need to look at these polluting sectors and thinking about how we're going to use those industrial skills. And then that comes on to the, the second major point, I think, is about energy generation, I think we need a serious conversation about, yes, it's impressive that we've we've built um, a large generation infrastructure now and it's getting bigger, that there's reliant on renewables, but not enough of those, that plant was manufactured in Scotland. I think that's quite disappointing. I think that clearly a liberal market approach isn't going to deliver that. I think that we need to look at a publicly owned generating company to look to oversee that that process to make sure that you know the major future developments in Scotland aren't taking place under multinational ownership, aren't involving low paid labour on the other side of the world, building supposedly green infrastructure in a very environmentally as well as industrially and economically damaging way. I think we need to look at, in all these instances, engagement with with trade unions and organised labour and local communities in that process as well. And lastly, I think of the the three-pronged approach I'm outlining here. So we've got running down the North Sea, we've got generation and, 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 you know, policies for industrial development. I think the other one is, is looking at energy usage, actually, which is an important part of this discussion as well, that... You know, we, Scotland can't continue to be a country that's dominated by car travel, for instance. We need it's part of those those skills that we're thinking about as well in terms of those engineering skills. They could be used for designing innovative public transport solutions. They could also be used for designing and adapting our housing stock, which could be much more eco-friendly. And in the process, that would deliver financial benefits, especially to families living in fuel poverty. Wow, thank you so much. I'm, I'm really pleased at how much, um, I don't know, how, how great a response you gave to that and you really thought about it because um, it's really interesting for me to hear. So I can, I feel like I'm collating all the responses we get to this question from each different person we interview and then I can just, you know, pass them off as my own because <laughs> they're all really good. <laughs> um, so yeah, thanks for that, Ian. Thanks very much and thanks for having me on. 
I like the idea of you saying about how you can bridge, like, you know, bridging this labour um, through decommissioning, because it's not actually something I'd really thought about mm. before. Um, but it seems like so obvious and really great. Um, so that's that's something that I'm going to take away as well. Cool. I think we're I think we're done. Thanks very much. Ian. Brilliant. Well, yeah. Thanks a lot. Have a good weekend. It's great. You too. Right. Thanks again for your time. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Young Friends of the Earth Scotland, a network of young activists fighting for climate and social justice. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.